On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson today. We've heard there's $4 billion now of bailout money for municipalities that are wallowing in deficits as a result of COVID. But how much is Hamilton going to get? And how much of this is supposed to go to transit? And what does that mean? Does that mean we have to get the LRT to get the bailout? Well, we'll talk about that. We're also going to be chatting about the WE charity scandal continues to grow more revelations all the time. How is this possible? How, how, how do we have politicians who keep stepping into these messes? They shouldn't be that complicated, should they? And we're going to talk about a new program at St. Joseph's Hospital in the emergency department. If you need to go to emerge, but you're not dying, you're not bleeding out, but you don't really want to go because it's inconvenient or you just don't think it's worth your time, we have an answer for you. They have an answer for you. Stick around. You'll find out what it is. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to CHML's The Scott Thompson Show. Otherwise known as Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It's a bit of a long title, I know. We're working on it. Glad you're with us today. Let me just say this. Never let it be said that listening to the CHML news does not teach you something new every single day. Take a listen to this report by Shona Thompson. Word to the wise, if you're carrying drugs, don't swap out the plates on your car in front of a Hamilton police officer. That was the tip-off in the area of Wellington Street North and Wilson Street yesterday afternoon. A BMW pulled up in front of a home, and at one point the officer spotted the driver go to the trunk and pull out a spare set of plates. The man was arrested without incident. A second suspect spotted the arrest and tried to flee but didn't get far. A search of the car turned up an assortment of drugs including purple heroin and crystal meth. A 29-year-old Hamilton man's been charged with four counts of trafficking, three counts of failure to comply with probation, and two other charges. A 45-year-old man has also been charged in connection with the incident. Shona Thompson, 900 CHML News. Maybe I'm just naive. Maybe I'm not in touch with the inner workings of the drug trade. But I had never heard of such a thing as purple heroin. Didn't know purple heroin was a thing. I knew heroin was a thing. And it immediately got me thinking, I wonder if purple heroin is better than the other flavors of heroin, like purple popsicles are better than the other flavors of the popsicles. Like, is there an orange heroin that's not quite as good and you get left that one if you can't get your hands on the purple heroin? I don't know. But you learn something every day, as I say. If the day ever comes that I venture into becoming a large-scale drug trafficker, I think purple heroin is where I'm going to go first because it just sounds like it's a delightful little drug. (laughs) Not really. Anyway, I want to talk about this municipal bailout program that was announced yesterday. It is a combination between the federal and provincial governments. They've put together four billion, almost four billion, just a few dollars short of four billion. Why they didn't round it off to four billion, I don't know. But anyway, uh, four billion dollars in bailout to municipalities who have been struggling because people can't pay their property taxes because they've been out of work or their income has gone down. And so municipalities have given people a break, but that means less money flowing into the municipalities. And keep in mind, cities, municipalities by law are not permitted to run an operating deficit. If they build a facility, they can take out a loan to build infrastructure, but they cannot run a deficit on their salaries, on things like that. They must balance the budget. Well, suddenly we're tens, perhaps, maybe some reports have said we could be $120 million in this city behind in our operating deficit. How much is this going to help? Let me bring in Brad Clark, ward councillor here in the city. He joins us now. Brad, thanks for doing this. Good morning. Afternoon now. Well, yeah, (laughs) whatever it is, it's day. The sun is out and that's a good thing. And it's warm out and we're all happy about that. Um, Before we dive into this, uh, just as an update, because the numbers move around so much with what's going on in the city. Best we know, what is Hamilton's projected or real operating deficit as we are the end of July right now? Uh, It would be $62 million at the present time. That's real money. That's not projected. That's where we are. That's where we are currently. Our deficit for COVID specifically is 62 million. And 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 presumably still rising. And still rising. So I mean that leads to uh, an awful lot of problems and I mean I, I don't mean to state the uh, blatantly obvious but if you're running a city and you can't run a deficit 
you have to find that money somewhere, which I think you and I may have talked about this before, but I think there's only two options. That is cuts or increased taxes, or is there a third? Uh, the bailout from senior levels of government. Would or be the, or third. the third. Very good. Yes, of yeah. course. What do we know about this? I mean, you heard about it yesterday. Um, do we have any indication of how much we're going to get or when we're going to get it or what percentage or how it's going to be sorted out? Because I think there's 444 municipalities in, this, in the province. I mean, what are we going to get? We really don't know. And what they talked about yesterday was specific to transit. So um, I, I know at the city we've had a loss of fair revenue. We've had a significant loss in ridership. But we've also had to modify our buses to protect our drivers. So there's a, a, a shield-like, clear plastic shield-like enclosure that protects them um, from, from having uh, the risk of an infected person spreading the, the, the germs onto them. Um, and then, of course, all of the program advertising, everything else to, to get people to wear a mask when they're coming on the bus. So all of these are COVID costs. And we don't know the details of the program in terms of what they're going to cover. Are they going to cover lost fare revenue? We don't know that. Well, and they also said, so they did say transit yesterday, and we'll get into more in transit in a second, because obviously there's a second story that spins out of this. Uh, But they also said homeless shelters, women's shelters, food banks, public health, and then transit. Um, as you mentioned, fares are down and there are other costs to go with transit, but those things, assuming those are the list of things that this bailout could go to, that doesn't exactly give you carte blanche for all the things that you would necessarily want to bail the city out from. And that, and that's the challenge. And that's been my concern from day one is that I'm concerned that the senior levels of government uh, will not reimburse us all of the money and that they, there will be scoping to how that money will flow, because it's been my experience in the past that they'll say some things are in, some things are out. Um, and so then at the end of the day, my, my biggest fear is that we will still find ourselves with um, a deficit. It may not be as large as $62 million, but there's amount of money that we're going to have to pay as a city of Hamilton. I'm hoping that's not the case. But until we see the details, we really don't know what they're, they've agreed to reimburse. And breaking it down, and you mentioned transit, um, it seems to be split that roughly half of the $4 billion they talked about yesterday is supposed to go into transit, a billion from the province, a billion from the feds. Again, we'll get to transit in a second, but that leaves $2 billion for all the other things. And as I said, there are 444 municipalities, all who are going to be in a situation like ours, not maybe to the same level. We're one of the bigger ones, but uh, all with their hands out. And Toronto is already 1.5, I think, billion behind. I mean, they're going to be seeking a huge part of this nut. So uh, I'm looking at this going, you know, how much is Hamilton really going to get its hands on for the things to, to help with that 60 or $65 million right now? Yeah, so, I mean, Toronto was a $2 billion deficit initially, and then they, they found savings of $500 million, so they're at $1.5 billion, which is a huge chunk of that amount of money uh, that's being promised from the feds and, and the province. And so, again, they're also equally eager to see what the details are in terms of how it's going to be spread out, what will be covered, what will not be covered. And as you're, you're correct, all of the municipalities across the province, to varying degrees, have incurred costs as a result of COVID-19. And so <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how much is covered in Hamilton and everywhere else across the province. Now, I, I don't mean to uh, muddy the waters even further, although I suspect what I'm about to ask you may do exactly that. But we also heard that infrastructure, Federal Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna said yesterday that, well, they their billion, or at least part of the money that they're giving towards this, they want it to go to shovel-ready projects, which means she specifically pointed out the Hamilton LRT. So if now some of the transit money is coming here and they're saying, yeah, but we want this designated for that as opposed to for anything else, um, that further would tie your hands, would it not? Um. It would certainly shrink the, the amount of money that would be reimbursed to municipalities for COVID if they start to 
divvy up that money for new capital shovel-ready projects. And I was not under the impression that the municipalities were going to the feds in the province asking for shovel-ready funding for new capital projects. They were very unanimous in their position that we have incurred significant deficit as a direct result of COVID-19 and that they were asking the federal government and the provincial government to bail them out because it was the federal and provincial government that issued the orders that required us to spend all of this money to protect people from COVID-19. So, and so if you if you bring in a project and you say this money must be designated for a project, again, it gets confusing because what the province may still have the billion dollars that was initially promised. We assume that's still there. But now we've heard, you know, the LRT is now potentially a $3 billion project. And even if you get some of the money from the federal transit gift that they're giving or the pay you bail out or whatever, in order to get that money and start with the LRT, the city would have to then take on more debt, even though it's already 65, whatever it is, million dollars behind. I mean, it, it you're, you're maybe getting some money, but you're having to go further in debt to make that happen. Yeah, and I... I, I... I, w- I did not see the press conference or the tweets from, from the minister, um, so I'm not sure exactly why she brought a capital infrastructure project into the mix when we're talking about reimbursements to municipalities for COVID-19 expenditures. We're not talking at this moment about getting the economy going. That's a separate issue, infrastructure spending. But somehow she's dragged it into this mix which is a, supposed to be a reimbursement, as I understand it, of COVID-19 costs to municipalities. But what it seems to have done, I would suggest, is, I mean, look, you know better than, certainly me better than anyone listening, because you've been around the council table. You know the fights and the disagreements and the everything else that's happened with LRT. It, you see, it seems to now inject LRT back and start the fight again about whether or not we're going to do this, that this is going to be something we have to do right away. And and I'm not sure, uh, some would argue that it absolutely is priority number one. I'm not sure if it is. I'm not, I, I would argue that getting rid of that deficit is priority number one right now. That, but it seems that, to have that has been correct, Scott. That has been the goal of the council. We have been advocating for, for the reimbursement of that $62 million. The mayor has been uh, spectacular in his advocacy through the urban, uh, large urban uh, mayor's conference or caucus to the feds in the province. They were united as, as a group saying that we need this money. They finally announced that money, and that money should be for reimbursing COVID-19 costs. So, all right, we only have a minute or so left here. Um, to go back to the bottom line, we're 60-something million and climbing it, it, I, I am assuming, hopefully wrongly, but I'm assuming we're not going to get all 60-something million covered by a bailout from upper levels of government, which means you around the council and the other councillors are going to be left with the option of raising taxes or cutting programs. When do, when do those decisions start having to be made? I suspect we will start the budget process in early September. We'll start getting numbers from our staff and then we begin crunching the numbers as we move forward and and i share your concern my fear is that we will not get all 62 million and the question is how much are we going to have to try to mitigate have you already been hearing from constituents about which they would prefer increase taxes or cut programs Yes, they advise me that neither is uh, comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, I mean it's. But I, I, I mean, mean the, we don't want. Uh, nobody wants to see services cuts, and nobody wants to see a large tax increase. But we're not allowed to 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 paper a deficit, so we can't carry that deficit forward. We have to balance the budget this year. Look, budget time is always, um, you may choose a different word. I'll say frustrating or angry. People people get bent out of shape about this, constituents and councillors. I can't imagine that if we are tens of millions in the hole to begin with, that this is going to be a pleasant process. This is going to be the ugly, maybe the ugliest budget process we've seen in a long time. I think that would be the headline, yes. <laughs> 
Brad Clark, <laughs> Ward 8 Counselor, really appreciate Ward 8, Ward 9? Ward 9. Ward 8. Ward 9. Man, yeah. it's summertime. The sun has burned some brain cells. Ward 9 Counselor Brad Clark. That's the first time I've done that one. I called Terry Whitehead the wrong counselor. The I, wrong think in metric, time, but that's, I think in metric it's Ward 8, but it's, we're Ward Or nine. an American. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. uh, Brad Clark, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing no this. No problem. Have a great day, Cal. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Probably if you have kids, you knew a lot about we before the last few weeks because at their school or wherever else they've had me to we day and the kids may have been at these rallies or whatever else, but you, your familiarity with it may not have been as much, but thanks to a new scandal or what some people call a scandal, some people call a nothing. Regardless, you can decide where you stand on that one. Uh, it is becoming very well known. The Kielberger brothers and their charity and a big contract, a single source contract with the government that was tried to push through that got found out and then it has devolved from there. Well, today the Kielberger brothers are going to be testifying or speaking at a commons committee. Here's what uh, Global's Mike Lacatur thinks you're going to hear. What I'm most interested to hear about are really the timelines as to when the We Charity first got the heads up or knew that they were going to uh, possibly get this contract and when they started working on it. We're already seeing some documents provided yesterday. Uh, it seems like they officially began to work on that Canada Student Service Grant on May the 5th, but Cabinet made the decision uh, to award the contract on May the 22nd. So did they get some sort of a heads up from people inside the finance minister's office or inside Cabinet that they were actually going to be given this contract? Because as we know, it was sole sourced, and that is why it is so controversial at this point. It is controversial at this point, although, as I say, some people say there's nothing here. Others are uh, very concerned about this because of a whole lot of reasons. Duff Conacher is a co-founder of Democracy Watch, and he's an adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa who joins us. Now, Duff, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. My pleasure. What could possibly, so you just heard there what uh, one of Global News' reporters believes you may or may not hear or should want to hear. What could the Kielberger brothers say at the Commons Committee today that would tamp this down and put out some of the flames that are burning around them right now? Uh, I think it's too late, actually, for them, based on the evidence that came out from Minister Morneau's testimony, and in particular, uh, an assistant deputy minister at the Department of Finance, uh, her testimony last Thursday before the House Finance Committee. And she gave more detail than Minister Morneau, um, and what uh, she said was that on April 20th, two days before Prime Minister Trudeau introduced the program, Morneau's office called We Charity and said, well, you've sent us this proposal, which, which uh, We Charity did in early April, sent a proposal to several ministers for a social entrepreneurship program. And uh, Morneau's office called them and said, well, change it to a program that will be uh, aimed at youth volunteer service. And that's April 20th. And then on April 22nd, Trudeau announces a program for youth volunteer service. We Charity has that proposal back to a bunch of ministers very soon after that. And uh, it looks like, from the evidence we have, Minister Morneau's staff continues to be involved uh, in the discussions with the public service. And, and his office is there, uh, from the evidence we have, pushing things in the direction of we being handed the money. So that's very early on in the process. Not surprising why We Charity would start working on the contract on May 5th, even though it's not approved till May 22nd, when you have these indications from ministers' offices pushing things in your direction to get this money. The other damning thing is, from the public service that just came out from documents yesterday, is that, yes, they considered 20 other organizations, but they didn't contact the organizations. And they made this conclusion with, again, it looks like influence from at least the finance minister's office, if not also the prime minister's office. They made this conclusion that we is the only organization that could do it when you're not really considering 20 other organizations unless you contact them and say, could you do it? And we'll pay you $35 million. Well, I bet you a few more organizations would have lined up to say, yeah, we could do it for $35 million. We'll find a way to do it. Yeah, of course. And we we'll find, itself yeah. did not have the capacity to do it. 
it is a false claim to say they're the only organization that could do it because they actually had to hire 650 people and contact more than 80 other organizations to get things going. So they couldn't do it on their own. They did not have the, the capacity to do it, as the prime minister has claimed. And that's why we're so concerned and have filed uh, complaints with the ethics commissioner and the RCMP that are different from what the MPs are filed. Our complaints are, look at this big question of how much did ministers' offices try to rig this thing in favor of we charity? Because that's illegal, not only a violation of ethics rules, but also of spending rules and also Democracy uh, Watch's uh, contention is possibly a breach of trust, a violation of the criminal code. Okay, and, and like what you you make a good point. You make you you make a very compelling point, and yet I go online, and maybe that's a mistake to begin with. But I go online and start looking around, and I see so many people saying, "There's nothing here. It's not a big deal. Why are you so bent out of shape about it?" It is clear there is a significant portion of our of our country of our society that sees no issue with this. Well. You're going online, so um, first of all, <laughs> I, I said it was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, it's not a statistically significant sample. You can see whatever stream you see from Twitter or Facebook, and who knows how their algorithms actually work. Uh, but uh, a survey was done by Angus Reid and showed that a large majority of Canadians are concerned about this, and a majority of Canadians have a worse view of Prime Minister Trudeau than they did a month ago, and not much has happened in terms of scandal since then, so I think it can be attributed to that. Every party has its core of support. Uh, 20% or so of Canadians support the Liberals and the Conservatives. 10 to 15% are core supporters of the NDP. The, the parties can never do wrong, according to those people. Smaller proportions support the Bloc and the Greens and think they can never do wrong no matter what they do. And they get very vocal in these situations on social media, trying to defend their the, whichever their party is the favorite party and, and uh, attack the other one. But that's not who the Liberals should be concerned about, or any party. They should be concerned about the voters who do swing, who are not those core, who are rabid and will always support your party no matter what you do. It's the swing voters, and swing voters decide elections. And if they, they swing back and forth from party to party because they're looking for good government, they're looking for solutions to be uh, uh, put in place for societal problems. And that's why they swing. When they think a government's no longer going to solve problems that they're concerned about, then they look for another party to support. And if you lose the support of swing voters, you lose the election. So that's what the Liberals should be concerned about, and there is evidence that they are losing support from swing voters. Their support has dropped in the last month, and this scandal has been really the only reason you could see why it would drop, because there hasn't been much else going on. Uh, the government hasn't really changed anything it's doing in terms of support for uh, this crisis that we're all in and uh, that would cause people to be angered with it. So that's what they should be concerned about. And they should also be concerned that Prime Minister Trudeau, Finance Minister Morneau are going to be found guilty of violating the ethics law, that's for sure, because they shouldn't have been at the table for final approval of this contract. But the bigger question that could possibly lead to an a, a RCMP investigation is did they actually intervene early on in the process and through the process to try and rig it in favor of handing tens of millions of the public's money to one of their fam family's favorite charities? And that question applies to both the prime minister and the finance minister, and we'll see what the investigations produce. It, it certainly suggests something either improper or really unbelievably incompetent. I, I don't know, There's is there a third option in there, or does it have to be one of those two? Uh, well, even if it is incompetent, it's improper. So it's, it's fair enough. It's but both. there's not a third one where you could say, "Oh, there's something." You know, we can explain this away, and it's very benign. And oops, we just you know these things happen. It's got to be only, either that you did it on purpose, or that you're just incompetent with how you handled the public money. Yeah, there's only one way, and that is if it was truly an emergency to get this money out the door, and there was only one organization. Uh, business or otherwise, or charity or otherwise, that could deliver what you needed to deliver as a, as a government. Otherwise, you can't just say, we're only going to contact one organization and only consider them fully and hand the money to them without a competition and are allowing anyone else to bid. Not when it's tens of millions of dollars. You can do that if it's less than $25,000. 
there is this exemption. It's a much abused exemption, of course, uh, where governments hand out money to people they like and organizations they like, but it has to be less than $25,000 or it breaks the spending rules. And then when you've added in that the Prime Minister Trudeau, Finance Minister Morneau, they've both been found guilty of violating the ethics law. They've both been investigated for conflicts of interest. So they know the rules. And they both sat at the cabinet table. And we now know from the testimony last Thursday, Minister Morneau had his staff intervene in the process of this uh, contracting out to We Charity. And so he, he uh, with his staff acting on his behalf, participated in the process, not just at the final approval, but throughout. And that's a clear violation of the ethics law. And because you're sitting there and you know you have a conflict of interest and you've been found guilty of violating the rules before, you're, so you're knowingly and deliberately taking part in a process when you know it's unethical, well, that raises the question of whether it's a breach of trust. There's five factors that have to be true, proven for a breach of trust. You have to be a public official, which Trudeau and Morneau are. You have to be taking part in an official duty or power, which they did. You have to be violating standards of your office and they, in a serious way. Uh, those are the third and fourth factors, and they did. They violated the ethics law in a serious way. The, the fifth one that has to be investigated is, did you do it for a dishonest or corrupt purpose? And there's already some evidence that that they did. They they knew they were in a conflict of interest, and they stayed involved in the process. Isn't that dishonest and corrupt to be doing that? So that's why we're calling on the not only the ethics commissioner to investigate the whole process, but also the RCMP. Well, that, and that's an interesting part about this, because you're right that the prime minister and then more no to some degree have been investigated by the ethics. I mean, the Aga Khan thing and, and others that this has happened before, but our ethics rules seem to be so toothless that it makes no difference. Well, it, it seems like it's only if the RCMP were to get involved with this one, that this would have any teeth. Teeth in terms of uh, an actual personal penalty. Obviously there is the political cost. And I, I think if you look at the results of not just the last federal election where the Liberals dropped from a majority to a minority, but elections across the country um, for the last 25 years, these kind of ethics scandals uh, do have effects on voter support and swing voters especially. Swing voters are looking for governments operating cleanly because they know if a government is not operating, operating cleanly, they're likely not going to clean up any problems in society. They're too busy protecting themselves and their family and friends and friends of their party. So there is that political cost, thankfully, because, yes, politicians wrote this law themselves and decided, hey, we've passed hundreds of other laws imposing all sorts of huge penalties on Canadians and businesses for doing wrong. But for ourselves, when we do wrong, no, no, we don't need any penalties. We'll just have, the only penalty will be there is a public report saying we've broke the law. And it's ridiculous. It's a sad joke. There should be a huge penalty. You should be paying a year's salary as, a, as, a, as the minimum penalty for violating this law. Because this law, the Supreme Court of Canada ruled in 1996, that this law is key to protecting the public's money, the public interest in our democracy. If this law is not strictly and strongly enforced, we don't have a democracy. That's what the Supreme Court of Canada, in effect, said in that ruling back in 1996. And we still have this law that's a sad joke that has weak rules with huge loopholes, weak enforcement, and, and no penalty except a report saying that you violated it. So that is in part why I think they're ignoring it. They, you know, they, they would wake up if they would lose a year's salary from every time they broke this law. Trudeau would, would have lost three years' salary by now. Morneau would have lost uh, uh, one year's salary and would be looking at losing it again. But they're, they're not paying attention for whatever reason. Their radar is off. And thankfully, there's a political cost because unfortunately, there is no actual penalty in the law. Okay, but how then, even if there is a political cost, this is the third time for an investigation into these kind of things, into ethics for Trudeau. How do they, how does this government, because I, correct me if I'm wrong, this is the, is this the only government that's ever had an ethics conviction against it? Or more, maybe there's been one before, but not more than one. People say that um, in terms of, I mean, ministers in the Harper government were found guilty. Okay. Of violating the law as well. Not Prime Minister Harper, but really only because the former ethics commissioner was a total lapdog. She, she gutted the law with her rulings, created loopholes that weren't even in, it, in the law. And the, the Conservatives should have been found guilty um, back in 2009 when they were handing out government checks with the Conservative Party's logo on it. I mean, that violated all the rules, and Mary Dawson, the former ethics commissioner, let them all off the hook. 
and created a loophole to do so. So they would have been found guilty, many many ministers in Harper's government of that and other things, if it hadn't been such a lapdog in the position as ethics commissioner. I just, I keep wondering how politicians keep falling into this then because i don't believe that these are idiots i don't believe these people are so all shucks you know uncle gilligan that they don't understand the rules and they just get found out they go really that's against the rule these are not dumb people and yet they do amazingly dumb things over and over again you'd have to ask them why their radar is not on uh i don't know is it not on or do they just not care because there's no penalty well, but they uh, that, that goes back to my question. Cost. They, you know, yeah. They've watched the last 25 years of Canadian politics and no one government out of government after government has been thrown out largely because of ethics scandals. And not just at the federal level, at the provincial level as well. Um, I don't know. They, they have contacts. You know, the WE charity is one of Minister Morneau's family's favorite charities, one of Trudeau's family's favorite charities. And governments often govern for their friends. You know, they're humans, they have these relationships, and they don't think it's wrong because they think they're doing good. And why not have my friend help us out? That's all I can explain it. It's not a justifiable excuse. They know the rules, and they know the rules are all there to say you can't just help your friends. No matter what good you think you're doing, you can't just involve your friends and flow with the public's money to your friends because you think they do the best job. Things have to be done on the basis of fairness and merit. When you're, especially when you're handing out the public's money. And um, that's all I can think of, is that they just think we're doing good, and therefore it's all right to do good in a bad way. But it's not justifiable, and they're going to be found guilty of violating the ethics law for being at the final cabinet table that approved this contract, both Trudeau and Morneau are. And the big question, though, is, is it more than that? We know that Morneau's staff intervened in a way to push things in the direction in favor of we. And that's a, that's a different violation than just sitting at the final table. And all the evidence we have is pointing more and more that it was a false claim for Trudeau to say, and all the other Trudeau ministers, to say that we, uh, that the public service on its own decided that We Charity was the only organization that could do this. We know that We Charity is not the only organization that can do it, and we have it, lots of evidence that Morno's staff was was pushing the, the public service along towards that conclusion. And we'll see whether there's evidence. We know that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's chief of staff, Katie Telford, was also involved in discussions. We just don't know the details that we know about Morno. We'll hopefully learn more on Thursday when she and the Prime Minister testify. And they're, they're going to be telling stories and try to make themselves look good, just like the Kielbergers are today. But uh, that's why the whole communication record has to be looked at. All the emails, all the texts, the phone logs, we're not likely to have recordings of the phone calls, but we need to know who called whom, when. And through the whole process of everyone involved, every minister, every ministerial staff person, if the Trudeau Liberals try to hide any of that, then Canadians are quite justified in concluding that they're trying to hide wrongdoing. And that's why they're not disclosing any documents so all the documents and all their communications record has to be disclosed to hopefully get closer to the truth. Duff Conacher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and an adjunct professor at University of Ottawa. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. My pleasure, and I'll keep you updated as uh, we hear back Please do. from uh, Please the do. Commissioner and RCMP. And we never even got to what's going to happen to the WE charity. That, that's for a discussion down the road. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's say you're not feeling well for a second. It's happened to a few people. Hopefully not today. Hopefully you're li- hopefully you're in full health while listening to the show today. But you can imagine you're not feeling all that well. Something more than a sniffle or a little headache and something less than you've just cut off your leg with a chainsaw. Something in the middle ground there where you might normally go to a doctor or even the hospital to be checked. Well, let me ask you a question. Would you be comfortable, again, considering it's not a life or death circumstance, would you be comfortable doing that visit online now? Has COVID and our self-quarantining period and what we've learned about what we can actually do from our living room, has that changed your opinion? Would you be okay seeing your doctor from home? Not a house call. He's there, you're here. Or she's there, you're here. Well, this appears to possibly be our new reality, or at least heading that way. St. Joseph's Hospital is launching a new emergency room system today that'll allow you to be seen online. 
not for not for life-threatening things. Again, if you're having a massive heart attack, this is not for you. If you can't breathe, this is not for you. But for other things, it's an intriguing idea that I think it must have existed before, but boy, it seems like it's time has come. Dr. Greg Rutledge is the Chief of Emergency Medicine at St. Joseph's Hospital. He joins us now. Dr. Rutledge, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, I think this must have been done places before, but th- this is this is this is brilliant. I mean, for for many reasons, but I think largely anyone who's ever been to the emergency ward knows there's a whole lot of people there a lot of the time who really shouldn't be there. Uh, starting just there, this may help to alleviate that a bit. Yeah, we're excited about it. I think it's uh, I, I think your analogy between the the two goalposts that you put there are, are reasonable analogies. I think, but yeah, we're excited. I think. All of us have have been confronted with the question of, should I come to Emerge, should I not? Uh, Do I need to go to hospital for this? And um, I know friends are always calling me and asking me that question. And so this is giving everybody an opportunity to have that question answered for them in a way. I mean, I think first step is always family doctor. Try and connect with your family physician. They know you best. But if you can't get into the see them or or you don't have a family physician, it's another service for the community, which I think will be, uh, we hope to be really well used. Well, and as I said off the top, I mean, anyone who's been to emergency and heaven knows I've been there a few times, uh, there's always loads of people and I'm guaranteeing that a bunch of them don't need to necessarily be there. The flip side though is, I would think that there are probably also a lot of people in the community who are very stoic and the opposite. They go, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And meanwhile, they've got something that really needs to be looked at. And if they can do it from the convenience of home and it's not a you know, a problem to go all the way down to the hospital and sit in a waiting room for hours, they may take advantage. It may be very helpful. Agreed. Yeah. And I think some of this was born out of the the first wave of the pandemic, hopefully the only wave, but certainly the first wave of the pandemic that we saw our numbers drop significantly, 30, 40% at times in the hospitals across the city and, and recognize that heart attacks and strokes and those sort of things don't stop happening in a pandemic and, and concern out of where these people were. And so, um, even having that instance occur where they call hoping to hear, no, no, you don't need to come, um, to be able to connect with them as they actually really do need to come and it's safe to come and here's what we've done to make sure it's safe just so they can feel comfortable coming. Um, that was part of where this came from, that there were people out there that needed to come who weren't. And then conversely, there are some who aren't sure. And it's really, I mean, they're not in the medical field. They don't know. That's not their job to know whether they should or shouldn't come. And and uh, being able to alleviate their concerns on those occasions where we can say, no, actually, you don't need to come. Or your issue is something that we can solve over the phone um, and direct the, the next appropriate care um, is huge. And it's huge at any time. As you mentioned, everyone's under stress in the eMERGE always. But in this time of trying to socially distance, physical isolate, um, to be able to minimize the number of people in the waiting room is, is a good thing for all involved. Did you say a moment ago that you're down by 30% or down to 30% during the COVID time? We were down upwards of 30%. We're back up to our normal volumes now. Um, but for there was a period of sort of five, six weeks there where we saw a significant decline in, the, in our numbers. Um, I think in part because people were staying at home and doing the right things. And as evidenced by how well we've done, um, people responded appropriately. But um, and then as things have eased up and people have gone out and about now, we're seeing our numbers increase back to our usual pre-March levels, um, but had some concerns in that time. And I think it was well documented mm. in the literature about where are these people? Cause there's certainly still adverse outcomes happening and, right. and why are they not coming? And so this was an opportunity to say, look, those people can engage with us and it might just be, you know what, absolutely. You need to come to hospital for this. It might not always be that you don't have to come, but, um, I think those are, those two scenarios are equally important that yes, you in fact do need to come and please come or no, here's how we can manage you without you having to come. Just one thing on that issue, on the COVID thing, which hopefully, again, we may be a little bit past those initial fears, but the people, did you find that the people, were there a lot of people that you found later were not coming that really should have? Or was it the fact that people were self-isolating and not doing stupid stuff so they weren't injuring themselves so they didn't have to be there? I think think a little bit of both. I think there were some who were presenting further along in their illness who were a little bit more unwell than had they come earlier and expressed some concerns about coming out. And in part because they were worried, in part because, frankly, they were just doing the right thing and being told not to leave, and so they didn't want to leave. Um, And so we did see those present a little bit later on in their illness than they would have normally. And then, yeah, I think there were just people who were at home and and not um, having misadventure, uh, certainly. (laughs) 
You say it so much nicer than I do. You're you're very more much more political. Misadventure sounds nicer than doing dumb stuff. Um, right. Now I started by saying this is new, but that it must have been done before. I, I remember watching or reading. I don't know. There was a, a something I saw once of video doctoring for lack of a better term, has been done before video appointments in remote communities and things. This is not entirely a brand new idea, even though it may be being done on a broader scale now. That's correct. Yeah, it's been around in, in sort of periphery somewhat. There are a couple of centers who've tried it already, even in the most recent past. Ottawa, Chio is doing it. Um, Kitchen Waterloo tried it for some time. Um, so it's been around in the periphery. I think certainly at St. Joe's, the number of virtual visits that um, were pushed forward uh, during our pandemic time, just increased exponentially. And I think it accelerated. I was asked by someone else, was this, is this a good thing to come out of the pandemic? And and you certainly don't want to ever say there's anything good to come out of the pandemic, but it has accelerated some of the thoughts that we've had in healthcare to push them a little more forward, a little forward quicker. Um, and so from that perspective, in a roundabout way, yes, it's been a, a plus that we started to think a little bit outside the box more and not only think about it, but actually start to engage it. I mean, we're going to, study this program very thoroughly, listen to feedback from the community, listen to feedback from our family medicine partners who were integral to this process, um, and tweak it as we need to moving forward. This isn't meant to be a pilot project for the pandemic. This is meant to be in place moving forward as an opportunity for, again, people to engage in the healthcare system as they need to. Yeah, and and the the thing that I remember watching as as you're talking there, one of the things that they were able to do, this person was in a very remote outpost and the doctor on video was walking the person through taking out their own appendix, which, you know, I don't know if we're going to jump to there yet at St. Joe's, but I mean, but you do have opportunities now. You do have, I mean, it's proven to have worked. You do have opportunities to, to do a number of the things that, that maybe are not as serious, certainly not as serious as that, but not all that serious, but that still need to be looked at. Agreed. I think the, the scalability or the, the, the opportunities with this are huge. I think supporting people in small communities, supporting people in remote communities is, is things that we've talked about at an emerge level of um, they do wonderful work in the community with very in the small communities with very little resources. But but accessing that uh, that extra layer of support at times um, could be huge, could be huge for the provider, could be huge for the patient. And so the opportunities to grow with this. And that's why we've we've couched it as not a pilot project this is something that i think will be will be a ro- will be more robust as we move forward because i think the the sort of arms of opportunity here are huge that we could that we can use starting just with the hamlet community that's who we serve that's who was most important to us um, but then from there build on on our learnings and where else we can take this and be sort of a driver in this is what excites us as as good as this could be do you miss something as a doctor by not examining somebody in person yeah, there are. There will be. I think there's the, the two issues that that concern us is probably not the right word, but that we recognize is that there will be certain presentations where we just can't make that call, and it's unsafe to make that call over the over the virtual visit. I mean, it helps that we have video as well as 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 uh, audio, um, so we'll have a little bit better idea looking at someone and seeing how unwell they are. But if they're presenting with significant abdominal pain it's very difficult to make that diagnosis without putting a hand on the patient's belly. Um, and so there will be occasions where they'll have to come into emerge and that won't be deemed as a failure is more just that, yeah, we need the next steps to, to sort of do your care. And the other one that, that we sort of recognize is that there are some level of, of uh, um, access issues that are going to be a problem. You need to have some means of a video and an email and, and or a cell phone tablet, something like that to access this. And so, that limits some of our access to patients. And for those, of course, they can always still come to emerge. But as we grow this program, we hope to commu- to connect with our community resources to figure out ways that less advantaged people can access this too, just so we can be as inclusive as we can. And we recognize as this comes out first that it won't be, um, but also recognize that that's on our radar and need to kind of build that in as we move forward. So what can you f- expect that this could really be helpful for? What kinds of things could you... As a doctor, could you comfortably see a patient and diagnose over the air? Yeah, I think something sore throats, rashes, early infections, uh, musculoskeletal injuries that don't require an X-ray, um, headaches or headache patterns to see if they need imaging that day or if they can wait to see their family doctor would be some of the obvious ones. You had mentioned some earlier. <laughs> it could be in cut by a chainsaw. Would 
wouldn't be it would be a difficult <laughs> one over the, over the over the phone. But significant lacerations. But again, the other part of this that I think is is exciting is that we can also engage in the patient and help them sort of break down that confusion of where to go, when to go. So there's an issue of at the end of the day, you need to come to emerge. Does that need to happen right now? Let's call 911 because you're having a stroke or a significant injury, um, or you need to come in the next several hours. We can look at our trackers and say, you know what, this is an appropriate an appropriate presentation for the urgent care. And the urgent care currently right now has five patients in the waiting room. So go there now. Or shift change for our doctors and nurses happens at this hour. Historically, this is a quieter time. Come to the emerge then just to sort of smooth out the highs and lows that we see. And as much as emerge is meant to be emerge and, and sort of unexpected, there is a consistency day over day to the volumes. And so if we can smooth that out a bit in an era of physical distancing, that's helpful too. So ideally we can manage it and not have to have you come, but if you have to come and it's not emergent, you have to come that instant, we can help guide you as to where the appropriate place to go is and at what time and, and sort of make it. So again, people are, people are pretty savvy now. They know their healthcare, they know technology, they want to be involved in the decision. And so this is another way to bring them in the loop and say, here's how we can help you navigate through the system a little better. You don't need to be an insider. We can help you get there at a time and not have to bring a book and a, a snack and all these things to get through. Mm. Are you confident that the system is secure? Because there would potentially be some parts of the body that someone may have to show a doctor online that you wouldn't necessarily want your neighbors to be able to hack in and see. Um, it's a secure system? That's a fantastic question. Yes, it is. It's all, it goes through the, all the same hospital um, security levels that any of our meetings and, and Zoom interactions that would. So um, we were very careful to ensure that it's safe. It is not videotaped in any way. That's the other question that I think appropriately would come up. There is no um, saving of any sort of this data in any way. We The only thing that's saved is the documentation that we do in the note uh, of the interaction, much like any patient care interaction, but there is no uh, saving of the video. There is no, and it's a very safe um, system. So how does it work then? I mean, is it is it a case where you're going to have one doctor, one GP, or somebody who is going to sit there and go through case by case all the calls, or is it a rotating roster of doctors who ever is a specialist with this, or what do you do? So it's all staffed by uh, the emergency physicians out of St. Joe's. So it's and we cover both the urgent care site at King Street and Stony Creek, as well as the Charlton site. Um, and so it'll be rotating in that it's the group of 32 of us. Um, always an eMERGE physician um, who has access to the Zoom chart. And so if you've been a previous patient here at St. Joe's, um, and even and it's not exclusive to St. Joe's patients, but we'll have access to any previous information that you have and can go on to Clinical Connect and see um, if you've had a CT somewhere else or an ultrasound somewhere else. So it's always eMERGE physician, one of the group of 32 of us who've committed, and all of us have committed to doing this and rotating through. And then as it gets larger, and we hope to expand it right now, it's Monday to Friday, 10 to 6, but... If, as this grows, growing it further into the evening, weekends, that sort of thing, will will be sort of expanding uh, from there. But it'll always be our our focused emerge group that uh, is on the other line. On the and, other and, there, of the line, and, and would there be specialists available if needed? Or by the time you need to have a specialist, you're saying come in because this is beyond what we want to do over the air. Yeah, so we're linking with our specialist partners to look at, uh, not look at, but have access to um, assessment clinics that, need that you may need to access um, sometimes that's difficult to do without having blood worker investigations or that sort of thing but if it's the kind of presentation that um, we're familiar with in terms of it's been in hot you've been in hospital recently or you're having a you know a worsening of your heart failure or something like that but stable um, that we can get you set up with the clinic or get you linked with the specialist we do that so you'll always you'll always be connecting with the emergency physician but we have means of facilitating that sort of care if we need to as well um, recognizing that sometimes that requires investigations and you coming in and maybe we have to do it through hospital but again if we can have if you're stable and we know you and we can get this arranged without having investigations then that's certainly within our skill of available resources to use I heard from someone and I, I have no idea I can't remember the dollar amount for the life of me but every person who comes into emerge and gets checked in Essentially, it's 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 an expensive process that goes through OHIP or whatever else. Is this going to save money long term because you don't have to go through all that process? 
It's uh, that's a good question. That's a bit of a challenging question as to how, and even people on the inside sometimes struggle with how much does it cost to walk into the emerge and be seen as a patient because so much of it is like we got to have the lights on, we got to have the nurses there, we got to have the docs there, and so it's hard to pinpoint down what one visit would do. It's not really a program designed to save money. That's not the goal of it, and it's not really a money saver from St. Joe's perspective. Um, and so it, that's not the motivation of it. It's more around. Um, trying to keep people to, at home if they can and not have to come to Emerge. If they have to come, come at a time when we can manage you. Or more importantly, you're staying at home because you're scared to come uh, and, and meeting with you and saying, you know what, no, it's always safe to come and we know it's safe. And the, both hospitals have done a great job of kind of pushing that message out there that we've changed processes and we clean and the changing of the changing of cleaning and that sort of thing to match the COVID risk. And so telling people it's safe to come and you do need to come with this. And so those are the motivations. It's not really a cost saving. And that's certainly not the motivation of the hospital. But at the beginning, you know, what? when I said that, I thought it was a brilliant idea at the beginning. I, I'm, I'm assuming that you're looking at this thinking, you know, assuming nothing goes horribly wrong and I don't know why it would. There's a lot of potential here that this could expand rather quickly, I would think, that other places look at this, not just for emergency, but to, you know, for your, maybe not for your annual physical, but for a lot of other things. There's a lot of things that you could do with the doctor just over the over the connection rather than coming in. Huge, huge. And I think, you know, it speaks to the innovative nature of St. Joe's that we're jumping out in front with this. There are lots of other hospitals that have lots of other, lots of other groups that are having this discussion. St. Joe's jumped full bore and two feet into the pool around virtual care during the pandemic and we're really supportive in getting this project up and excited about this project but yes it's not limited to St. Joe's by any means there is scalability to this across what we're doing and expanding what we're doing but then into other institutions as well and I just think it's it's 2020 it's time we integrate um, all of this integrate communication integrate electronics into our care and so um, I think everybody's looking at how we can do this and the pandemic has just pushed it ahead so many years because we know we've got to we've got to now act and not just pontificate uh just to finish here this started today i believe it's by appointment you have to connect online and there's a certain number per day that you can do obviously it's not an unlimited number but where does somebody go or how does somebody get on to this list if they need to see a doctor Great question. So it starts tomorrow. It starts the 29th. Oh, tomorrow. Okay. Uh, yeah, it starts. At, so the appointments run from 10 to 6. There are essentially six appointments an hour. So it's every we book every 10 minutes for patients. Um, so it's roughly 48 patients if you do the math for over eight hours. You can go to My St. Joe's. There's a link there that will be active that you can um, at request a virtual visit and then it walks you through. It's, it's uh, meant to be fairly easy for the, for the average user. Um, you have to put a little certain amount of information in there. There's great sort of um, background information on who, quali- who, who is ideal for trying to get through your family doctor first. If you can't get there, 911 if you're worried. Uh, but you go on there, put in your information. You'll get a response from us um, during business hours within the hour um, dict- indicating your appointment time and then another another push link when us as the physician click on. And so it'll, it'll be a link to say either by text or email to say, um, you're ready for your appointment, you click on it, and then you'll be face-to-face with the eMERGE physician. Dr. Greg Rutledge, the Chief of Emergency Medicine for St. Joseph's Hospital. It's a really interesting idea. I appreciate you taking some time today to talk about it. Thanks so much for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.